Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today on B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper is Ben Rhodes, Group Brand Director at Phoenix Group, the largest long-term savings and retirement business in the UK. Previously, Ben was Group Marketing Director at Royal Mail and also Vice President, Head of Brand Marketing and Sponsorship at MasterCard. So Ben Rhodes, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Looking forward to chatting to you. So first off, what does being a bit more Don Draper mean to you? Uh, well, you see, Don brought together creativity and commercial savvy. Everything he did was tied into great customer understanding, but it was always about selling products. And I think that's that that's one of the things that really chimed with me when I kind of first bumped into that character on Mad Men. And this show is all about creative effectiveness, mainly for B2B businesses. What do you think about uh, that issue from your time with MasterCard and then Royal Mail? So I think there's a lot of challenges for B2B businesses um, and for, for marketeers uh, in particular in those businesses. And, and a lot of that is down to how the function is positioned within the organization and, and whether it's able to really leverage the full marketing mix. And, and I certainly learned, um, particularly in, in Raw Mail, which is a big B2B organization, that you could only be effective if you were, uh, there was a very clear role for marketing alongside that of sales. Mm. And what have you found to be the best way to drive long-term growth uh, in B2B? I think the, there's a sort of broad set of drivers, but really understanding where value lives is massively important. And I know that sounds obvious, but oftentimes a lot of marketers don't really understand where true value lies. And I'm not talking about revenue or income. I'm actually talking about you know, bottom line profit and where are those pools um, in, the, in the addressable market? or um, within your existing customer base? And how can you unlock that? And I think having a really strong understanding of where value sits is massively important. And that allows you to then really dig deeper into those audiences and work out what propositions, what channels you need to have to extract that value. That's really key for me. And, and why do you suppose B2B marketers generally are so bad at understanding value? So I think in a lot of organizations, the focus on uh, of B2B marketing is um, at the kind of lead generation end of things. And uh, and it becomes quite a tactical conversation um, about how we can just get leads in and we can sell to those leads quickly, which is, it's part of the value mix, but it's not all of it. Sometimes, you know, winning business can look on the outside to be you know, hugely successful, but actually the quality of that business um, it, you know, can be very variable. And, and so, you know, really being able to dig into and being incentivized to create value as opposed to sales leads or top line revenue is massively important. And not, and not all marketing functions are, are set objectives or are aligned to the business strategy in that way. Mm. 
So looking back at your career, uh, all the things that you've done, what would you say is the most creative and impactful work that you've been a part of? What really stands out for you? I think um, I think I did a lot of work at MasterCard on the Priceless campaign back in the sort of 2005 to 2010 that, that I, was, I was really very proud of. But I wasn't proud of it just because of its creativity. I mean, it won bucket loads of awards. It's iconic, yeah. Everybody knows this one. Yeah, but but actually, what I'm most proud of is the transformation that it it, it did to the PNL. Right. Um, and I think it it helped me understand that actually, um, you know, just doing very high impact creative work can really you know deliver great commercial upsides. But that required a lot of work in itself. That you know, really understanding the PNL, really understanding what was driving it, really understanding where values lay, and actually how to how to unlock that. Um, and and so yeah, I'm I'm very proud of that work. And you know, I suppose launching contactless payments in the UK back in 2008 is probably you know, the thing I'm most proud of in the UK. Given that everyone, you know, taps their card now today, uh, which you know back back in the day, no no one did at all. Well, everyone was a bit scared in the beginning, weren't they? They were, they were. I mean, you know, it's ten pounds and a tap every five every five taps you had to put your your card in to make sure no one was defrauding you it was uh yeah it was it was it's quite a, a major turnaround but you know t- 10 or 15 years on and going back to the priceless campaign can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what was your your role in it sure i mean priceless has got um it's really grounded in um a terrific um insight and, and customer understanding which you know from a broader marketing perspective is something which all good marketing teams are able to 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 kind of gain for their businesses, but but at Mastercard, what 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 they noticed in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands was that culturally there was a, a change, a move away from conspicuous wealth um, through to the value of experiences. And so, prior to Priceless, a lot of the the advertising, certainly in pa- the payment space, was all about you know people flashing the cash. Buying expensive things, Amex was famous for this, with you know great big limousines in their adverts and people being conspicuously wealthy. But there was a real culture change at that point in time as well, where people go, actually, no, it's the, it's not having money that's important; it's what you do with it. And priceless really taps into that kind of vein, that kind of human truth around spending time with your family or having having amazing experiences around the world. And so, so we sought to dramatize those experiences not the payment moments. I don't think I featured a single payment moment in any of the advertising I did for for MasterCard. You know, if I wanted to do an ad about grocery to get people to spend more in, in, in Tesco's and Sainsbury's, I'd probably do that about a big family dinner or family lunch on a Sunday. You know, or for, uh, we, 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 didn't, we never made this ad, but we, we talked about a lot around petrol and, uh, and petrol stations was quite a big category for credit cards. You get quite a lot of spend there, and we wanted to stimulate that more. So we thought about having a campaign that would be a road trip, and the line would be something like "more memories and miles, priceless." And it was just you know you would you would just dramatise the experiences that people have, not necessarily going in and paying for something and showing people using a card. So it was quite brave in that way. It was very emotionally uh, driven and and sought to kind of get a real connection with with customers. But of course, you know the the thing about the priceless campaign was that. Whilst it was a consumer campaign, it was really there to create massive brand awareness to convince the banks to issue MasterCards. 
I mean, that's that's the bit that you have to understand. That's that, It was there for the merchants to go, yeah, I want to accept that card. I'm going to put these terminals in. I'm going to pay a bank to accept these cards. Um, and for the banks to kind of go, yeah, I'm going to issue these cards to these customers. That and, and it was, you know, there was a very holistic kind of view of what the marketing was trying to achieve. Um, it was a kind of B2B2C model that we were operating in, which was quite smart. Got it. Very interesting. And with that campaign, taking that emotional, empathic, connective way of doing things, did that come with any creative risk when you were presenting that to the higher ups? How did you how did you go about convincing them, and how did you manage any sense of maybe this isn't going to work, or were you always confident that it would? I think everyone was always confident it would work. You know, the the business needed to be distinctive. It couldn't be like everybody else. One of the challenges in payments is that the experience at a product level is exactly the same. And it has to be, whether you're paying with a Visa or a MasterCard or an Amex, you go to a terminal and pay, it's got to be the same experience. You can't have a different product experience as a consumer. So the only way you could really differentiate was through your brand and your branding. And so the risk was to be like everybody else. Right. You know, it wasn't risky to be different. It was risky to be the same. So, so that that was it. But but also, you know, there was a huge amount of insight around around this and then the the, the initial creatives that that, that, that were developed um you know just really resonated tested very well um and then when you pop them in the market they worked a treat now according to Ehrenberg bass a great creative can improve effectiveness by around 20 percent do you think marketers can tell the difference though between good and bad creative <laughs> not 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 always and not certainly not consistently i mean i i spent a decade in advertising agencies eat sleeping and breathing how to build uh, advertising and I, I have my fair share of failures um, as i was doing that as you'd expect when you do it day in day out but i also learned a huge amount about what works and, and the truth and my and my watchword on on this for marketeers is if you're arguing about the idea it's a bad one mm, interesting no one ever argues about a great creative idea never ever ever it's utterly intuitive it's crystal clear it's very simple the mo the, the only time i you know you know, have have run campaigns that haven't worked. Have been where you know we we have had great discussions about it. We've had to work on it really hard. The idea hasn't been born very simply, and and I think far too often marketers put work out where they're not really a hundred percent on it. And if they were honest, what they should really do is stop and start again. Right. Um, that's quite hard to do, but unless it's really simple. Um, and and has that resonance, um, it's not going to be great creative. Interesting. And, and what do you think we can learn from those failed attempts to do that? Oh, loads of stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, quite often the thinking just hasn't been strong enough. You haven't really dived into the audience's shoes. You haven't really understood what I would call the expectation gap between what they have today and actually what they want to have. Right, and really just boiled that down to um, a very, very simple idea. And it's the, the best campaigns in the world are always the ones that are the simplest ideas. So getting to that is the most important upstream thing that you can do. And what's the what's the secret then to that? Is it research, knowing knowing the audience? Is it uh, just bouncing ideas around until that perfect idea fits into the jigsaw puzzle? What what's the secret? I think you have to give yourself a bit of time. Um, and you have to work with creative partners who are going to be 
absolutely rigorous on that. It's quite easy to not give people enough time to work on briefs, um, to work with cheaper providers. Um, but, but in general, the best creatives out there have got a laser-like logic um, that they apply to, to, to stuff. And, and you often see it when they present work back to you. Uh, I, you know, I, I come from a, a pre-digital world when I started my career. And, and one of the best things in the pre-digital world was that you were presented ideas as, as what they call tissues. So there might be a hand-drawn or a marker sketch of what the ad would be. Mm. And the joy of that was the idea had to be really strong because you weren't buried behind lots of animation, behind lots of colours and typography. It was really just the idea that you were being sold. And I think the, the best creative teams still work in that way. Um, and they just, they, they'll just come to you in a meeting, having spent two or three weeks working on a brief or what have you, and they will come with not a lot of stuff, but they will come with some brilliant ideas. Um, and you can quite often you know, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff by the amount of board that people bring into meetings or the size of the PowerPoint deck they're going to present because the best ideas tend to be, you know, you can do that on a page. Let's talk about your time with Royal Mail. Uh, people might be surprised to hear that B2B makes up a large part of their revenue. Can you talk about your approach to growing the Royal Mail B2B business during your time in charge there? Sure. I mean, I joined Royal Mail um, before it had IPO'd, so it was still a fully regulated uh, monopoly uh, at the time. But but I joined as part of a, a team that were you know going to take it through into into public ownership and transform the business and make it a commercial organisation. Um, so it, it was an opportunity to um, really take an enormous company, but start from scratch from a marketing perspective. Because when you're a monopoly, you don't really need to sell because people have to buy your products. But in a deregulated uh, market with lots of competition in, in parcel and, and, and indeed in, in, in letter delivery, um, you, you have to be commercial. You have to work out who you want to sell to um, and, and what your propositions are um, to succeed there. So it was a great opportunity to really go in um, and do foundational work. So you know the, the, the biggest piece of work I did there was around um, uh, customer segmentation to really understand um, our customer base, how the market worked, where value really lived. Um, and then off the back of that, um, was able to put in place a huge array of different programs to unlock that value um, from acquisition campaigns to CRM to helping the sales team change their entire sales coverage model so that they're actually selling to the right customers rather than just the ones that uh, offered the most revenue, but from a value perspective, were the most profitable uh, or most valuable for us to work with. So, yeah, a, a huge, a huge amount of work there, and also digitizing it. Uh, you know, it'd be no surprise to you that Royal Mail does an awful lot of direct mail, um, partly because it doesn't pay for postage, but partly because it's the channel owner. Um, and uh, when it was a, a monopoly, it never really had to look outside that much. So there was no, you know, they spent more money on on uh, yellow pages advertising than they did on on pay-per-click uh, when, I, when I first joined there. So there was a huge journey to go on to kind of really transform the digital side of that business as well and kind of get it um, match fit for, you know, the 20th century. Mm. And then fast forwarding to Phoenix Group, where you are now, what's the brand and growth challenge facing you there? So Phoenix Group is, um, uh, is a, a massive company, probably one of the largest companies in the FTSE 100 that no one's ever heard of. Um, so, and that was that that was um, part of the um, uh, you know excitement about about being asked to join them. Um, 
Phoenix has come about. It's it's a it's a uh, long term savings and retirement business, so pensions, I suppose, in in plain speak, um, and has been built up over the last twenty years through loads of acquisition, and it's now reached a, a stage where it's the largest business of its type in the UK. Whereas before it was what we call a closed business, it would just buy up old pension books and put them onto a, a digital platform and, and run those pension schemes for people. Um, it, it's now an open business um, as well. So it, it bought the Standard Life brand last year to kind of really grow the pensions business. So it's it's really interesting opportunity for me because as the largest player in the field and a, and a very purpose-driven organization, um, it's really looking at some of the massive issues that we're facing as society with uh, longer lives and the fact that about 15 million people in the UK aren't saving enough for retirement um, and kind of going, how can we, you know, as the largest player in the field, how, how can we change that situation? How can we make a difference? Um, and so from a brand perspective, uh, my job is to develop the group brand strategy across all the brands we own, but also grow the corporate brand um, to support our, our overall enterprise strategy across the group. Uh, and that's you know massively exciting for me. And some might say there are two ways to grow your brand, either gaining more customers or selling more to your existing customers. Uh, are both approaches equally viable to you? Oh, well, you have to do both. But in my experience, market penetration, market share gain is a very well, much more important than than kind of um, the frequency side. You have to win new customers to grow your business. But obviously you don't want a bucket with a great big hole in the bottom. You've got to keep what you've got and maximize the value out of them. I think if you just focus on existing customers, you're kind of going to get into ever decreasing circles. Um, it's really important. And, and you see this time and time again, that the businesses that are the most successful and get the most market share are the ones that are constantly in market, either growing their category or getting more and more buyers from that category into their brand and i think you know you, you can't underestimate how important that is it's quite hard certainly in b2b it's quite hard to sometimes convince people that's what you need to do um, because you know lighter buyers or lower frequency buyers in a category tend to buy at a slightly lower rate they might not appear to be quite as valuable but you know it, it certainly in some the b2b markets i've worked with you know it's um uh, you know, it's a question of acorns growing into oak trees. You, you know, you, you quite often you want to get all, as many small businesses in as you can because, you know, some of them really will go on to to, to become enormous businesses um, over, you know, a, a five to 10 year period. And, and it's definitely, definitely worth going out to the whole market. Absolutely. Sometimes a new marketing leader comes into a company and wants to shake things up, put their own stamp on the business. But by doing that, they can lose what's worked for the organization for a long time. So what are the things that Phoenix does well that you feel are important to preserve? That's a good question. Um, I mean, the interesting thing for me at Phoenix is, is that there, there wasn't a brand function before I came. So um, so in many respects, there wasn't anything they did do. Um, I, you know, my, my remit is to, is, has been to come in and, 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 and set up a, a, an entire capability in the organization. Um, but I think within within some of the brands that we own, there's there is good marketing practice and there's a great understanding of customers, which I think is something you don't want to lose. One of the bigger challenges is is kind of um, if I can use a, a, a kind of Boris term, is kind of leveling up the overall capability across the organisation and getting a much more kind of consistent level um, of um, uh, of skill 
uh, and capability, but also how we approach going to market. Um, and, um, and and certainly within within Phoenix Group, the collective of all of our different brands, you know, is is much stronger than the individual parts. So you know, a huge part of the brand strategy is pulling all this stuff together to create mo- much more value in the center, which will support the share price, will allow us to do more M and A, and keep on growing in in other ways alongside organic growth. So it's um, yeah, one of the, one of the bigger challenges is how do we keep you know, the the distinctiveness of Sun Life, let's say, and Standard Life, but also pull them a little bit closer to the group so that we, you know, there's a bit more of a halo effect going on there. Um, uh, and and people start to associate that that all of these companies are part of this enormous company um, that, you know, is going to drive significant change in the UK for millions of people. Mm. In B2B, emotional messaging can be more effective in the long term and rational messaging more effective in the short term. How can B2B best harness the power of emotion? <laughs> it's quite a bear trap, to be honest with you. Right. Um, it's quite a bear trap. I think that, that uh, you know, understanding emotional benefits of your customers for the products and services you're offering is really, really, really important um, for a long-term sales and marketing strategy. That there is There is no doubt about that, whether you're – you know, because uh, at a kind of entry point, people aren't buying, you know, nuts and bolts and attributes. They, they're kind of buying into a company. They're, they're trusting something. And, 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 and tr- you know, depending on what type of B2B sector you're in, some of the purchases are of enormous value. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, there's a level of reassurance and trust and dependability, which are all emotional drivers and benefits that, that are hugely, hugely important. But there's a question mark over whether or not you lead with that in your advertising. Um, so it really depends on the type of marketing that you're doing and uh, and kind of how joined up the ecosystem is. I mean, one, one of the things I learned at, at, at Royal Mail was that, you know, a good marketing plan was only a good marketing plan if it was completely joined up with the sales plan. Uh, massively, massively important. Uh, otherwise, you know, we would be, you know, creating tons of leads for them of which they just weren't selling to or they weren't converting or they weren't profiled in the right way for them to kind of succeed. Um, and so um, going back to the question about a kind of rational and emotional, well, you could create a lot of heat and light around emotion, but it's got to be um, at the right part of the sales cycle and it's got to be um, uh, complemented by some of the rational facts as well. So you might do those in slightly different different campaigns in different ways, but but you 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 can't do it all on its own. Emotion is helpful to give people a sense of reassurance and recognition, and um, you know, uh, and help to build up a, a sense of yeah, I definitely consider these guys. But when it gets down then to to the the, the finer points of decision making, um, where you've probably got multiple stakeholders making a decision about a purchase. That's when attributes and features uh, and rational benefits really kind of come to the fore. It's a bit further down the purchase kind of funnel, uh, right. but that's really important as well. So you don't want you don't want to be leading. You know, if you're doing a big brand advertising campaign, you don't necessarily want to be leading on rational features. They're not relevant. You probably want to lead much more on emotional features to get people interested in that brand. But as you move down that sales funnel, um, or people come to you a bit lower down that funnel, that's where those rational. Um, attributes and, and and product features might be much more salient um, and relevant to people. So it's just a question of kind of balancing it all out. 
Interesting. And then connected to that, the competing pressures of delivering in the short and long term, how do you create an environment that performs today and also creates for the future? <laughs> I think um, that's kind of quite quite a question of, the, of our times, isn't it? I, I think a huge amount of this depends on how the marketing function is positioned in the organization. It's incredibly difficult to create a long-term marketing plan and a brand building plan if the organization's maximum outlook is one to three years, because it takes a long time to build it. I mean, when we entered, when MasterCard entered the UK, it was a 10-year business build. It was a 10-year um, uh, business case, um, but hu- huge amounts of money. Um, I've never come across another business that had a 10-year outlook in such detail in my career. And I think, yeah, so it was, it was a lot easier in that organization to say, right, we're investing in brand and this is how we're going to do it. And activation comes in a little bit later. Uh, most businesses operate in a much, much shorter time frame these days. I mean, it's three to five years. You're looking for payback max. And, and most board plans really, yeah, the, the five-year plan is the three-year plan extended. Um, so it's very, very difficult to um, pitch a, a, a big um, brand building, long-term value creating plan if the ambition of the company just isn't there. So what, what I would say first is that you have to align your marketing strategy to your overall commercial or enterprise strategy and really understand what the drivers are in that. That's absolutely critical if you're going to do long, you know, because it, it, if people haven't got a long-term outlook, there's no point in putting a long-term plan in place. And I think sometimes marketers forget that a little bit and they're not as joined up as they can be. I think the, on the flip side, um, if you just focus on short-term gain um, and you don't ever build a case for or start a conversation about, actually, do we want greater pricing power? Do we really want to shift our market share? Do we actually want to grow the category so we can catch even more? Um, you know, if, if you're just focused on the bottom of the sales funnel and just capturing as much as you can, um, uh, within you know within the budget that you've got, you're never going to be able to stimulate um, you know exponential growth, and that might be what a board wants, but but they they haven't got anybody there who's talking about that at the moment. So I think I think it's really about aligning the marketing strategy to the overall commercial strategy and kind of taking it through from there. What's your approach to growing the overall category versus taking market share from your competitors? So I think the first kind of principle on this is really understanding the size of your category and, and, and what you're competing against. And, and so that that really relies on a, a really deep understanding of your customers, but also a very clear-eyed view of what they're not going to be spending their money on if they're spending it with you. I know that sounds a bit of a kind of gross way to talk about it, but I think sometimes people forget that marketing is about selling things um, and, it's about, and it's about making money. It's quite a commercial activity. And, and customers are, um, you know, sources of revenue. So when you're trying to grow a category, what you're trying to do is displace other categories. So you're, you're going into someone's wallet and saying, right, you're not going to spend this money on this. I want you to spend it on this. So you just have to be very mindful then of, of kind of almost what your competitive set is. So what you're doing when you're growing a category is you're not necessarily competing against your peers um, with against their products, you're actually competing against another peer set, um, a different set of people who are currently um, uh, being used by these customers 
uh, for something. So that's 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 the way to think about it is to actually kind of go right. Well, I, I want I want them to spend more with me. Um, and I want that to be new money, which means I want people to stop spending money on these things in these other categories and spend it on my products and services. So that's the sort of mindset that you have to have when you're trying to grow, you know, basically generate demand in general for your category. And then if you're a big enough player, you're able to kind of win much quicker. And what I would say on, on, on category growth is that it isn't just about advertising um, and, um, and kind of, you know, digital means. I think the, Probably the biggest change in my career that that has rocked certainly the advertising world that I started my career in has been kind of channel expansion. So the ease of being able to buy things has never been so great. The ease of you know uh, uh, being able to just go online and go go to any website anywhere in the world and buy whatever you need. Yeah, you know, that that didn't exist twenty years ago, and uh, and so kind of alongside communications to kind of make people aware of your product and your service and why it's better you also have to have those um um you know that kind of ease of access to be able to get hold of your product or your service and actually buy it and that and that, and that actually makes category growth incredibly hard much harder than it was 10 or 15 years ago because you're not just doing advertising you also have to have a huge channel mix that's also out there so that you know People can just, you know, they can. They, it's very easy for them to buy your product as opposed to what they're buying today. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why it's not as common uh, as it used to be because it's quite a large endeavour and quite a long term strategy to be able to do that. Great stuff, and that just about brings us to our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you uh, some very quick questions, and I just want you to respond from your gut, if that's okay. Okay. All right, here we go. So number one, advertising or ABM? Advertising. Logic or magic? Magic. Brand building or lead generation? Both. <laughs> Cheeky. <laughs> What's the problem with B2B right now? I think people self-constrain and they don't think about great B2B marketing. They just think about B2B. Um, and I think they should think with a much more of a kind of, um, much more swagger. Mm, and that leads us on to the next one. How would Don Draper fix the problem? <laughs> well, Don was an iconoclast, so you know he he loved kind of puncturing stuff. Um, so I think um, I think it's about taking a step back and kind of going, how can I make this really interesting? You know, and I think I think that's that's definitely you know what he, what he would bring to B two B marketing. And if you could tell all CEOs to read one book, what would it be? Uh, it would be How Brands Grow by uh, the Don himself. Good choice. And then finally, uh, what's your favourite Don Draper moment or quotation? I think it's in the first series. I can't remember what episode it is. Probably episode five or six. He does a presentation to Kodak for a new bit of kit which they've um that they want to sell which is um effectively uh, a slideshow machine and and the way he does the creative presentation is genius because he doesn't talk about product he doesn't talk about attributes he doesn't talk about anything like that what he does is he swaps out all of the slides that are in the in the uh, in the device and he puts pictures of his family in there and and he 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 pitches to them using their device talking about the story of his family mm. 
And effectively, what he's doing is is selling memories. He's not selling a carousel. Uh, and it, it is a most striking piece. Uh, I mean, the writer who, who pulled that together has absolutely captured what great advertising and great brand building is all about. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's my, one of my favorite scenes um, in that series. Selling memories, that is the perfect place to end. Thank you, Ben Rhodes, for such an insightful, interesting, fun chat. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I'm Stuart Black. See you next time on B2B Needs Don Draper. <laughs>